Welcome to the AFIRE Podcast. What can catastrophe teach us about the potential future of retail after this COVID-19 is over? Andrew Garrett, Executive Director of the Real Estate Portfolio at IMCO in Toronto, recently wrote a piece in the summer issue of Summit that examines how events such as the 1900 Great Toronto Fire surprisingly created a better future. So I'm really glad to have a chance to sit down with him today and hear his thoughts about retail and catastrophe. Thank you, Andrew, for joining me. Great. Thank you for having me, Gunnar. So, Andrew, how does retail adapt to disaster? Thank you. Yeah, I was looking at retail as, a, as we invest across many real estate asset classes is it serves um, people's need uh, to to not just buy on the surface level, but needs to interact with society and how, what, what it plays in terms of a role of health and wellness and connection uh, and celebration and all those types of things. And so I look at how it adapts uh, in various catastrophes. And, and one of them happened to be uh, one in Toronto where... I was kind of born and raised, but in the early 1900s, there was a great fire in Toronto. And um, there was a bit of an underground pathway uh, that connected some retail at that time. And even uh, in those early days, um, as it is now, underground pathways are pretty un. Uh, prohibitive uh, and, and expensive, uh, but it made sense in little pockets. And uh, this fire and this catastrophe created an unexpected adaptation that ultimately led to um, one of the largest underground networks in a, in a major metropolitan city. I'll never forget the first time I walked down there. This would have been 20, 30 years ago um, in Toronto. Um, it felt like any suburban um, uh, shopping mall, but it all happened to be under the ground right downtown in Toronto, really kind of incredible space. Yeah, it's surprising. It uh, at, uh, you know, kind of pre-COVID generated uh, over $1.7 billion in sales. And uh, has over 4,600 jobs, uh, and they're all just below ground there. And uh, some visitors um, uh, or tourists sometimes don't think of Toronto as dense or as populated, and, and sometimes they just miss the fact that when they visited, they didn't uh, take the underground path. So, you know, here we have this kind of unique um, and interesting part of what makes Toronto Toronto that came about because of a disaster. What would have happened if the disaster had not taken place? Uh, I, I wouldn't like to say that it was just that one piece of the, that created this, but I would say uh, certain adaptations create the way um, space is delivered. So I think of, I think space, hard space, people see as a good, a hard good, but I think of it more as a service. So uh, if this was not, uh, if this fire didn't take place, uh, there wouldn't necessarily have been this sensitivity uh, to the infrastructure and the wiring that was all uh, networked above ground. And what happened uh, after this fire, as in most catastrophes, people reflect on, 
you know, what was the cause? Uh, what could we do different to make sure this doesn't happen again? And some of the reflections at that time were that the thinking was that there's some faulty wiring or the way we have our infrastructure set up above ground is is creating a danger to uh, to society. So to make it safer, we're going to uh, invest more and, and put some of this infrastructure below ground where it can't be uh, tampered or, or is more creates a more safer environment. And and retail again is something that always um, adapts to people's perception of safety. And so uh, it's something that has to adapt quickly because if people aren't comfortable, uh, they don't feel safe, then they're not going to be uh, be willing to 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 purchase. And so there's a lot of studies that show that people need to feel safe, not just for themselves, but to bring their families and 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 the greater amount of safety. Um, you feel uh, the more comfortable you are in making um, purchases, especially when it comes to the larger uh, and, and more meaningful purchases. It's certainly something that we take for granted, right? When, when things aren't so frightening and we think of these spaces as, of course, they're safe. We don't think about it until catastrophe occurs and then suddenly it becomes very important. I, it was pointed out to me once that um, if you look at the 20th century in terms of large fires, of urban areas, um, they don't happen. They have not happened mostly in the 20th century. They happened a lot in the 19th century. And it wasn't just Toronto in 1900, it was certainly Chicago in 1871. But one of the reasons why cities don't burn is because of those fires, because of what we learned, to your point, what we learned about safety, what we learned about how we answered the question, how do we collect people once again downtown and make them feel that it's safe again? So I think it's just fascinating. But in addition, when we think about the catastrophe that we're now facing in terms of COVID-19 and in terms of the, the social distancing and, and people being concerned about coming together in crowds, we have to, we have to wonder if w what this looks like going forward. A lot of what COVID-19 has done has accelerated existing trends in terms of um, online retail has just you know, blossomed certainly in a time when people aren't willing to go to a store. Um, we have uh, changes in behaviors. We, we even have question about whether or not we're going to need the same kind of office space that we have used for the last 50 years. Um, a lot of things are in question. But one thing strikes me when I think about retail today, and you, you point to this in your article in terms of how much retail in the U.S. and, and Canada there is on a per person basis compared to the rest of the world. And, and I think you showed a statistic that in the US, there's 23 and a half square feet of retail per person. And that's, you know, much different from say the UK where it's 4.6 square feet per person. What do you think is going to happen going forward in terms of retail space demand? Right, you're correct, and it's a, it's a staggering amount of retail uh, located in the U.S. and uh, several times that of U.K. and several times that of of say a place like Japan, and and no one would argue that uh, Japan and U.K. don't have uh, great retail amenities and great retail options uh, in, by international standards. So the U.S. has so much, and I would say. Uh, the view of it is is 
it's hard to look on it on an average. And and that's what happens a lot with uh, national data is we're looking at averages uh, and don't really get a feel of what's performing and what's not performing. And so with that amount of space, there's an incredible amount of retail footprint that is uh, underutilized and unproductive. And so I think uh, as we look at what catastrophe does is is, um, it, as as we we go through this, we want to say we can't afford this amount of underutilized space. Essentially, I think it's under demolished. So I think owners of retail will start to look at uh, higher and better uses around periphery of their sites or uh, built into their sites to say, well, how do I create a destination that is better utilized than it's currently being utilized. And, but what I don't see is them saying, how do I eliminate the retail component? Because if you're going to add, for example, a multi-res uh, component, or you're going to add more office component, uh, what makes uh, an attractive office or what makes an attractive place to live is a place to also buy and, and a place that is a, has vibrant animation um, and isn't, uh, you know, uh, you know, the office spaces where everyone comes to work and everyone leaves at five and that, that area is dead. No one wants that. They want live food and beverage. They want live retail experiences. So retail creates such a critical piece to the live, work, and play dynamic that people aspire to and people seek. So I I see in the U.S. um, and in other areas we're seeing in Canada as well, where owners of retail are looking to add uses and, and reduce that retail footprint, but certainly not looking to eliminate it because of its important piece to the puzzle. You you said under demolished. Now, that certainly doesn't sound entirely positive. So you're you're thinking that there's a lot of conversion that needs to take place and perhaps an outright tear down, rebuild kind of uh, scenario. Can you give me a little bit more detail on that? Right. I think it it depends on on the type of retail. We were used talking about broad categories, but there's there could be large box format. There could be uh, really high-end enclosed malls, and there could be more convenience. And so, all of them serve uh, similar or different demographics and and have different uses. and 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 I think the part that clearly gets the most headlines right now is probably more the large box uh, department store uh, format, because I think that is an area where where uh, it's been hard to to utilize that much space and make it very productive. And so that's an area that seems to be going under transformation the most and that had been happening uh, prior to to COVID. And uh, and I think as uh, COVID, um, again, pushes landlords to get more and more uh, productivity out of their site, uh, they they're more motivated um, maybe to, to, to find uh, a higher and better use of spaces or to demise them into multiple spaces as a way to try to um, recapture value or add value in those locations. Because again, this c- catastrophe, things that were 
maybe hard to do or less economic to do in, in other times, now um, now there may be some more motivation to, to, to take a more long-term view of the site and see what you can do with it. Absolutely. Well, I, I think certainly it's, it's, it's the counter to if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's broken. So now we get to fix it. When you think about What's going to happen, you know, at this point, we don't know exactly how COVID is going to work its way out, how long it's going to be, how hard it's going to be over the next six months, over the next year. What do you think are some of the trends that we should watch? What do you think retail will do, how it will change? What are some of the things that will change the way the retail landscape will look like a couple of years from now, five years from now? Where are we going? Right. I, I believe retail, like like many sectors, is, is being shaped by the techno the advances in technology and, and that technology is really servicing people's needs. And so I see again trends that happened before COVID getting accelerated. We're seeing a uh, huge unification of um, uh, omni-channel retailers, retailers that have physical locations and have a strong online presence. And now we're seeing that even move down, not just in large Fortune 500 companies, but even smaller businesses uh, are starting to up their technological innovation. I, uh, one of the examples, even just last week recently, my local coffee roaster, I didn't you know, they do things the old fashioned way by definition. Um, but they said, hey, do you, we have an app now. So, you know, feel free to, 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 to add on our app. So now now I'm connected, uh, even though that coffee shop, its physical location is uh, is important to it and, and it and its atmosphere is important to it. But I'm now connected as a customer in a different way than I had been in the past. Now they can uh, speak to me on their blog. They can they can get a better understanding of my my habits and my buying patterns. And so that uh, creates an unprecedented intimacy with the customer. And and so technology is allowing that in a way that it hasn't before. And so that I think is getting accelerated. We're seeing that with the online purchasing, um, growing and, you know, in Canada, at least we've seen it, you know, May over May, uh, online purchasing increased well over a hundred percent, uh, in a year. And, and so it still is a small piece of the overall retail picture. Uh, you know, it's less than 10% of overall retail sales is online, uh, in Canada again. Um, but that, uh, acceleration is again coming, and what's happening is we're seeing that unification of of uh, an online presence and an and a space for service uh, to provide. Uh, the other thing we're seeing again in this tough time is it is hard for landlords and tenants um, to be very adversarial now. You know, uh, you know, as a as an owner of a retail. Uh, as owner of retail malls, you are now collaborating more. And I think developers and owners had been collaborating with retailers in the past. However, just by nature, there's a bit of an adversarial role between landlord and tenant. And uh, that leads to um, misalignment sometimes where maybe a retailer is so focused on their own individual position in a mall 
that you know they're less willing to to do things for the greater good of the overall property and then vice versa maybe landlords so focused on just collecting their rent monthly that they're have contracted that they're not willing to bend on individual fluctuations and different things because they know regardless they they are entitled to this rent so now we're at a point where a lot of landlords and tenants are forced to work together and collaborate as they reorganize and 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 transform to to serve people in the future because now uh, landlords are sometimes only getting percentage rent or or actually, as they've announced in some large deals, looking to buy equity positions in some of the retailers within their retail properties. And I think retail, to a certain extent, has been more the leader in terms of working with tenants than a lot of the other asset classes. I mean, the, the invention of percentage rent, uh, you know, not quite 100 years ago. Uh, but I think it's interesting that you're seeing equity positions becoming more common than perhaps they were before the catastrophe. Well, let's go back a little bit in terms of what we've learned from perhaps past pandemics, if you will. And the U.S., to a certain extent, was mostly spared uh, the impact of SARS uh, in 2002 and the swine flu in 2009. But Canada did experience more of a disruption from them. Are there any lessons that can be taken from those past pandemics that will help us see how this may play out? And, and what kind of effect this will have long term on people's behaviors. Right. I believe one of the the really impactful feeling is is not to necessarily project when you're in the middle of a catastrophe, try to project for where you are as to what the future is going to be. And so it is hard to do that in times of crisis. But uh, I was actually myself um, in actually hospitality during SARS in Toronto. So kind of first time experience seeing our hotel occupancy in a luxury hotel, you know, drop from, you know, high 80 percent down to, you know, uh, you know, less than 30 percent occupied. And, and to see that dramatic swing of events and, and, and people afraid to travel and then a lot of pronouncements that people will will never travel again in the way that they used to uh, as as that came out because they felt that even if they found um, a cure, that people just mentally would be just less comfortable with travel than they used to be uh, because of this this fear of, of uh, pandemic or fear of um, epidemic uh, diseases. And what in fact happened is after... Uh, SARS had subsided uh, within Toronto and 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 in various countries. Um, the hotel uh, sector within Toronto blossomed, and 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 really, where there were v- very few luxury hotels, um, even at the very high end, people uh, started investing, owners and developers, and uh, created several new um, luxury hotels within the market and and the market has been able to sustain all these uh, these new properties uh, after you know what had seemingly been a, a catastrophe that would have limited the growth in that sector altogether which I think is very heartening for those of us as we're going through 
um, the you know the bottoming out, if you will, of demand certainly in hospitality, but in in all uh, sectors of the economy, and certainly all sectors of real estate. What are you most excited about? What are you excited about happening potentially as an investor over the last over the next few years? It's, it's, a, it's a point. It's hard to be excited about. You know what's going to be your 2020 as an investor. <laughs> but um, I think as a long-term investor, as, 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 uh, as we're being a steward for pension funds that are investing for, for generations, essentially, I think we're excited about the opportunity to enter into markets that aren't as maybe competitive or overbid as they have been in the past. Um, and also to really collaborate and rebuild and you know back to your point of there's a lot of real estate that can carry on if it isn't broke you know don't fix it and there's a lot of real estate that's really well located um and just because of that default location can provide satisfactory returns for people but i think now uh we we have the opportunity to really collaborate with owners and retailers to create experiential spaces. And, and uh, especially with the amount of data we're, we're starting to get an understanding of people's consumption patterns at a, at a level we never had before. Uh, and, uh, and understanding that people still have this amazing need to bond, to celebrate. I think one of these things that um, I've been feeling in this catastrophe is, well, what is so essential that even um, within this period, people have this um, psychological need to do still? We still, you know, there's still, I've seen, you know, student graduations going on and, and people finding ways to, celebrate and and memorialize and recognize those accomplishments and achievements and and so i think retail has an opportunity to really connect with customers and i'm excited to kind of see what they come up with because they have now uh the space physical space and the online information and and that connection with their customer how do they unify that and how do they make that a really seamless experience well on that note we we have run out of time unfortunately andrew but i'm i'm really heartened by by the way you're looking at things and certainly using both history uh as well as the current times to understand where we might be going i think it's certainly a, a positive place so thank you andrew for joining us great thank you gunner for having me and i encourage anyone who's listening to this to make sure you read the summer issue of summit and take a look at andrew's article there's a, a lot of research supporting some of the ideas that he shared with you today um and there's certainly a a lot more for us to learn um, in the weeks and months ahead. So take care. Before we close out completely, I want to make sure that we thank uh, AFIRE's underwriters who help support our programming throughout the year, whether virtual or in person. Um, and it's thanks to the generosity of groups like Prologis, JLL, and Holland Partners that we're able to provide you with this podcast. Thank you all. This podcast is produced by AFIRE, the Association for International Real Estate Investors focused on commercial property in the United States. 
AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. None of the content is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included in this podcast may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. This is Gunnar Branson from the AFIRE podcast. Thank you for listening.